Hi, Dave Emmer here. This is for the record program number 1287. Interview number 24 with Jim Eugenio about the JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on January, excuse me, February 3rd of the year 2023. We are now into Black History Month. That is the month of February, and that is appropriate. Once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airwaves Jindy Ajanio, author of, among other titles, Destiny Betrayed and the book version of JFK Revisited. That is a companion piece to both the two- and four-hour documentaries. Uh, Jim is also the author of a magnificent four-part essay about the Kennedy administration's civil rights record. And again, I'm a crusty SOB, and I don't hand out compliments easily, but uh, that essay, Jim, that series of essays, I should say, is, in my opinion, a masterpiece. So uh, kudos for that. Uh, one of the points before we get into the specifics as noted, and this this is something that will appear to be perhaps hyperbole or exaggeration or propaganda to the uninitiated, but it is in fact the case. Uh, the aforementioned four-part essay by Jim documents that, and I think it is more than fair to say that what I'm about to relate was one of the reasons why JFK was killed. As Jim noted in a summary of the key points of information in the document, in, in those uh, four essays, the Kennedy administration did more to advance civil rights in three years than the prior 18 administrations did in nearly a century. And that sounds like hyperbole. It is, in fact, uh, historically accurate. And so we are going to plunge back in to our uh, deep dive on those essays. Uh, Jim, we are about up to the war on poverty, which was actually begun by JFK. And I think before we get into some of these specifics, it might be worth recalling a prophetic statement that was made by Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother and attorney general, right after the riots at the University of Mississippi in, I believe it was 1962, about 63, but maybe that in the early 1960s, uh, after that deadly confrontation, Robert Kennedy said, if you think this was bad, wait till you see what happens in northern cities if the problems there are not addressed. And by that, he meant what black residents of those ghetto areas would do if the status quo was maintained. And what RFK said turned out to be devastatingly, accurately prophetic. Uh, Jim, let's talk about the war on poverty and what uh, Robert Kennedy actually uh, was foreseeing and what he and his brother were trying to do about it. All right, this is a very interesting subject, which uh, really is disgracefully ignored, okay, by all kinds of historians, all right, because what happened, of course, is that 
they chalk up the war on poverty to Lyndon Johnson, all right, um, as part of his Great Society program. That isn't the way, By the way as, as they did the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which is also there. Yes, 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 it's exactly correct. All right. Um, what, what, what happened here is that by 1963, JFK had his civil rights bill in Congress. The first draft of it was in February. And he unleashed one of the most massive lobbying programs in contemporary history. Uh, he brought in, I think the total is like 1,570 people. He bussed them in. He Amtracked them in. He flew them in. And these were all representatives of professional groups, like, for example, lawyers, doctors, dentists, uh, clergy, etc. And he and RFK and LBJ began to lobby them to support the civil rights bill because Kennedy knew that the Southern, the Southern senators would go ahead and do everything they could to break the back of a civil rights program by the historic filibuster. All right. And so he knew he had to overcome it. Well, he began to, with this tremendous lobbying program which I think went on in June and July of 1963. Kennedy began to think that, that, hey, maybe this is going to be successful. All right. You know, because he got a lot of credit for this and people were very thankful that they brought him in. And it was really actually that lobbying program that broke the back of the filibuster. And Richard Russell actually admitted that later. All right. Well, Kennedy now starts thinking, you know, maybe it's time to do something else. Maybe it's time to start doing something about the circles of poverty that are located in the middle states and the north. Okay. All right. So he calls in Joseph Heller, his chief of economic advisors. And it was Joseph Heller who actually coined the phrase attack on poverty. That's what he said. And this devolved into the war on poverty. All right. Now, the origins of this, and hardly anybody ever talks about this, this began between Heller, JFK, JFK's sister Eunice, and Bobby Kennedy. All right. And it started off as Eunice Shriver was very interested in finding out the whole origins of juvenile delinquency, how that started, why. Okay. And of course, today we call it gangs. Okay. They called it juvenile delinquency back then. And she wanted the president to start sanctioning studies of this phenomenon. And of course, she didn't work directly through JFK. She worked through Bobby and then Bobby got this thing going. All right. And Bobby brought in another guy. And this guy is, is ignored as Charles Houston. His name was David Hackett. Bobby brought him in and he essentially said, I want you to be the point man on this project. All right. And so Hackett began studying the latest books. Okay. On the subject. All right. 
you know, the causes and consequences of allowing juvenile delinquency in big cities. This eventually expanded to poverty because Hackett came to the conclusion that most of the thinkers did back then, that it wasn't really a matter of the individual making a choice. It was really the problem was that there were no opportunities to do anything else in some of these urban ghettos, all right? So it was almost natural for some of these kids who came from broken homes to succumb to this, all right? And so if you can believe it, JFK budgeted $30 million, which would be like $300 million today, okay, to do study projects all over the United States. And Hackett began working on this day and night, all right, along with Bobby Kennedy, all right? And in fact, he would, he and Bobby Kennedy would visit some of these blighted areas in places like New York City, all right? And Bobby Kennedy would actually invite, you know, people like Chuck Connors, a TV actor, Cary Grant, the movie actor. He would invite them to come in and talk to these young children to give them models to look up to, all right? And so this is how this all starts. And Hackett, if there was ever a guy who really, I mean, he just threw himself into this thing, all right? And this was going to be President Kennedy's model for his war on poverty. And in fact, at his last cabinet meeting, Kennedy, JFK, uttered the words poverty six times during that one meeting. Jackie Kennedy took the notes from that meeting, all right, and she gave them in a frame to Bobby Kennedy, meaning JFK is dead. It's your job now to get this thing going, all right? And so Bobby Kennedy did what he could, everything he possibly could. But what happened, of course, is that Johnson became president, okay? And Johnson almost at the first meeting with Walter Heller, excuse me, yeah, Walter Heller, okay, he almost threw out the whole program because he said it's too small scale. And this is, this is a very, very important point. See, Hackett had not finished the work he needed to do on this. He had very, very acute ideas about what you could do in a barrio was maybe different than what you could do in Watts. Okay. You know, and that you had to offer a whole package of opportunities. You couldn't just dole out money. All right, not knowing what it was headed for. All right, not knowing that it's going to be hijacked by the locals, you know, in those big cities like Chicago. All right. And so this was the part of the program he was working on. And it was this that JFK was going to actually feature in his 1964 campaign. Well, first of all, if you can believe it, LBJ got rid of Hackett. This is incredible. Hackett had been working on this for two years. Nobody in the whole administration 
knew better how to handle this project than he did. All right. He was becoming sort of like the PhD, you know, in the war on poverty. Right. He, he gets rid of Hackett and to everybody's shock and surprise, he brings in Sergeant Shriver to run the program. Why was everybody shocked? Because Sergeant Shriver already had a job. His job was running the Peace Corps. I mean, that's a pretty big job. All right. So now he brings in Sergeant Shriver. And Johnson begins to, as he usually did, he begins to domineer over the project. And he figures that this is like the New Deal. Okay. We need more and more money to throw at this problem, all right? And that's the only way it's going to work. And if we have to bring in the local people like Mayor Daly in Chicago, okay, all right? Well, Johnson announces his war on poverty, all right? And then he turns it over to Sergeant Shriver, and it begins to be dominated, just like Hackett said, and by Bobby Kennedy did not want it to do, the money begins to be taken over by the local authorities, all right? And Bobby Kennedy actually said, you know, this is the worst thing that could happen, okay? Because it's these people who have ignored this problem for so many decades that it's now come to this, and we're going to give them money that they're going to hijack. Okay, for their own purposes, their own programs, their own patronage. Okay, but that's what ended up happening. They were called community action uh, grants. Okay, community action program grants. And what Hackett wanted them to do was to be like, for example, um, you know, do, do, do you need legal assistance? We'll give you a grant. Okay, to, to go ahead and do that. Do you need after-school tutoring? Okay, we'll put together a program to help you do that. All right, do you need transportation? Okay, we'll go ahead and help finance that. It was giving these people an opportunity to have programs they would never have. Okay, if the if if this if the uh, war on poverty was not there. But what happened is, and there's several books on this that I, I mentioned in my essay that shows what happened to this because Johnson just, Johnson was never a good administrator. Johnson was always the guy who would present something. Okay. And he'd, he'd go ahead and use his imperious personality to go ahead and get it through. But as a pure administrator, you know, he was not very good at this, plain and simple. All right. And so a lot of the money ends up being squandered, going into things like local school districts, okay, and local city government. All right. It, in, in, only in a very, very few places did it work out the way that David Hackett had it had planned. All right. And so this is, and then Johnson essentially lost interest in it by about 1964, 1965. And then, of course, then, of course, he announces the Great Society Program, 
I think that was at the University of Michigan, okay, in 64. He announces the Great Society Program, all right? So now you have the war in poverty plus the Great Society Program, all right, plus the escalation of the Vietnam War. You know, like Johnson is is, going to be able to do all three of these things. Well, no, he wasn't, all right? And so the big explosion that sort of was like a mini atomic bomb, okay, over this whole movement that uh, that JFK, King, and Bobby Kennedy was pushing, and to a lesser extent Malcolm X, okay, this occurred in Watts. And I'm sure, Dave, you know all about that, okay, um Watts ended up being the first of the huge gigantic riots okay that well they kind of redefined you know what what the whole civil rights program was about it was huge it took up something like 40 46 square miles you know in south central los angeles all right oh, by the way Jim, there, there is a uh cut by the Mothers of Invention, written by Frank Zappa, called Trouble Every Day, that is specifically his own subjective point of view watching the Watts riots on television. Really? Oh, that's ter- that sounds terrific. Yeah, called Trouble <laughs> Every Day. It, 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 it's on the very first Mothers of Invention album. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's, that's great. I'll have to listen to that sometime. Yeah. So this begins... In the summer of 65, and the whole, it began with a a very small traffic stop in which the guy would not, you know, would not cooperate with the police. A huge crowd began to gather, all right, like a thousand people. And then they began this chant that was going to haunt the rest of the 1960s, all right, burn, baby, burn. I don't know how they thought that up. It was spontaneous, I guess. And then it began to into a cheer. Then it began to, you know, fill the air as more and more people got involved with this. All right. By the way, Jim, the, the central lyric of that Mothers of Invention song uh, is, there's no way to delay that trouble coming every day. You know, it, uh, and that, uh-huh. that, I think, is an accompaniment for the burn, baby, burn. <laughs> That's terrific. All right. And so what happened is the police could not control it. They could not control what was happening. It was spiraling out of their ability, you know, to bring in more police forces, you know, and calm everybody down. And so what happened is they ended up having to call in the National Guard. And the the thing went on for like a week. All right. And there's a picture of it in my in my essay. It's only one of many, many pictures you can look at to see how, how huge this thing was. All right. And, and Martin Luther King calls up Johnson during this, because he goes out and visits and he tells him, you know, president, you've got to do something about this. You've got to start giving these kids hope. You've got to give them a future. You have to start making some promises, you know. And Johnson is just shocked. He's shocked at this. He didn't come out of his bedroom for a whole day. 
all right? Because he couldn't believe what was happening, you know? All he could think of is everything I've done, and it's not enough for these people, okay? And so, but Bobby Kennedy went even further than 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 King did. You know, he said, look, calling in things like the police, you know, getting this is not going to help anyone because these people don't believe in the police, okay? <laughs> to them, the police are the enemy of their lives. So how the heck are you going to control anything by piling in more law enforcement, you know? All right, and so uh, that was the first explosion that took place. And that just about everyone in the White House at that time said that this was a huge turning point, all right? And it was from this time on that Johnson decided that um, he was not going to cooperate anymore on this whole war on poverty program. He put together a famous commission. Um, you've probably heard of it, the Kerner Commission. Yes. You know, yeah, led led by Otto Kerner. There, and there were some very good people, like Representative Jim Corman, like May- Mayor uh, Lindsay. I think Senator Edwin Brooke was in that also. That report, that report was so honest, it was so blistering, it was so insightful that Johnson did not want to show up on the presentation day. All right, and I, and if I remember correctly, I don't think he did show up. All right, the day it was supposed to, pre, you know, all these reports, like the Warren report, get presented to the president. Okay, that one, he didn't want to show up. Because in that one, they essentially said, I mean, this is how blistering it was. They essentially said, America is splitting into two societies. Okay, one of a white upper middle class, you know, suburban, uh, well financed. The other is a lower class where hopelessness roams the streets, okay? And these two societies will eventually conflict with each other. I mean, that's that's how honest this thing was, all right? And that's why Johnson didn't want to show up, all right? You know, and so that report, I think it, if I remember correctly, it was so popular, it sold something like 300,000 copies in the first year that it was out. You know, it eventually became a classic in the literature, right? And 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 Johnson really didn't like it because it was essentially was saying, you know, uh, Mr. Johnson, you failed, okay? <laughs> so and so and so and so what happens then, of course, and I don't have to you know all about this, you know, this the Watts riot eventually was actually surpassed by the Newark riot in New Jersey, and I think that was in 67, right? And that one ended up being such a mess that the police ended up firing on the National Guard, and the National Guard returned the fire, all right? It was at this point that Bobby Kennedy called up Tom Hayden, who was the, uh, I think, the chief of the SDS at that time, 
Students for a Democratic Society. You know, and he said, we have to talk. Okay, we have to start. How are we going to cure this problem? Okay, what are we going to do about it? Because everything so far has failed. All right. Now, if you, you, you can imagine uh, a senator today talking to somebody like Tom Hayden. <laughs> okay, that's kind of off the charts. All right. You know, Tom Hayden was like the, uh, he was the, uh, you know, the, the symbol of the radical left at that, at that particular time. All right. And, and Tom Hayden said later on, well, I'm sure you know this when, when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, Tom Hayden went to the funeral and he broke down and started weeping. All right. What, what Hayden's later said is that Bobby Kennedy wanted to try and meet with the major networks. At that time, of course, it was only CBS, NBC, and ABC, you know, and he said that he wanted them to run documentaries about what life in the ghetto really was, was about. Because he wanted to do this in order to increase understanding of what the heck was happening to the United States at this time. Why it was exploding, you know, in every single direction. The first year, if I remember correctly, and you can check the essay, you know, if I'm getting this wrong. Okay. I think the first year there were 46 riots in 65. In 60, in 66, they started jumping off the charts until I think in 67, there were a hundred and there were 160 or something like that. And then in 68, there was something like 140. All right. But Newark ended up being the new model for the size and scope of what these things were. But then that was quickly surpassed by Detroit. The Detroit riot was, if I remember correctly, the most deadly conflagration in a hundred years, I think the, it almost surpassed the New York draft riots, you know, back in, I think in 1963 or something. Or 1863. 1863, right. All right. And so this, I think something like four, over 40 people were killed. All right. And, and there was, it was simply out of control. And Romney, the governor of the state, had to ask Johnson to bring in troops this time, all right? And that's the only way that th- that thing got restored. So as you can see, what's happening is that the great society and the war on poverty have now turned to dust, you know, the be- because of, what, of of what's happening in these huge, dramatic conflagrations. All right, which are now being all over the all over the television, newspapers, magazines, etc. Which, 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 by the way, Jim had been forecast very specifically right. by Robert Kennedy right after the Mississippi riots. Right, right, and he had you're exactly right. He predicted this, you know. So now Bobby Kennedy becomes more or less the champion of these inner city youths. All right. Him and Martin Luther King. You know, they're the only people that they feel that they can trust. All right. And so now 
as time goes on, and remember, as this is happening in the United States, the war in Vietnam is getting worse and worse, all right? I mean, it's, it's getting really bad. No matter how many troops Johnson sends over there, all right, he cannot find a way to defeat the combination of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army. And so Johnson now begins, his popularity begins to ebb, all right? You know, a tremendous boost he got, you know, uh, in the 1964 election where he won something like 60% of the vote, you know. And the other thing that happens, and this is a very important point to understand as to how this country got so screwed up, all right, the other thing that begins to happen is that the enemies of JFK, RFK, okay, they begin to use these riots. People like Richard Nixon, people like Ronald Reagan, people like George Wallace, all right, they begin to use these riots, but they don't do it in a racist kind of a manner. The motto becomes, we must restore law and order, okay, law and order. All right, so in other words, it becomes an inner city crime issue, which is, that's not what it was at all, all right? But this is what the Republicans and their advisors, okay, like, for example, Patrick Buchanan, all right, what they begin to use to what they used to call drive a wedge into the Democratic coalition. And and this is where it began. All right, this is where it began with these with these summertime riots year after year after year after year. And I don't think it's an exaggeration. And I I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that this was the ultimate unraveling of the if you want to call it the FDR-Truman-JFK coalition, all right, that the urban workers, the lunch pail guys, they began to break off from what they perceived as the Tom Haydens and the radical leftists, okay, all right, and also the, the, the there also began to be you know, people like uh, Eldridge Cleaver, all right, H. Rapp Brown, Stokely Carmichael, who were far left of King, all right, all right. And this began to be the polarization of the Democratic Party. And make no mistake, this was all very much planned by by these advisors in the Republican ranks. And so this is why people like Reagan and Nixon, you know, began to kind of echo people like Wallace, all right, of this this fake right-wing populism, which we know didn't really exist, all right, you know. Uh, and so I, I really truly believe it was this that 
essentially broke the back of the, of, of the Democratic Party to the point that it's never really recovered, you know, from, from what it used to be, right? And so as time went on, as time went on, and as, as these uh, riots increased, you know, in their frequency and, and their violence, all right, it became kind of irreparable. All right, the damage, the social fag- fragment was not, you, could, you really couldn't fix it anymore. And so Johnson then goes on TV, all right, and I think it was March of 1968, and he says that he is not going to run for president that year. All right, and the reason he did that, of course, if you recall, I'm sure you do, he almost got beat by McCarthy in the New Hampshire primary. All right, I think it was something like 49 to 42%, you know, and McCarthy didn't have any money at that time. All right, and so he also gets the word from the next place, which I think was Wisconsin, that nobody's showing up at his headquarters, okay? <laughs> He's not getting any support. So he decides then that discretion is a better part of valor. He does not, the last thing he wants to do is lose to somebody like McCarthy or Bobby Kennedy, and he decides not to run. Bobby Kennedy, five days later, announces that he is now going to run. And Martin Luther King that night was overjoyed when he heard the news that Bobby Kennedy, he says, we're finally going to have a great president. You know, he really believed that Bobby Kennedy could, and that, that was his term, could be a great president. All right. And he had, he had told, he had told, because his advisors wanted him to come out for McCarthy, you know, and at least it was again, because King and Johnson had no relationship at all by this time. Okay. By 67, 68, because once King came out against the Vietnam War as violently as he did, there could be no middle ground between them. All right. And so King was waiting and he told his advisors, I'm not going to come out for McCarthy because we're going to wait to see what Bobby does. All right. I think he's going to enter the race. All right. And he did. And he did. And so Martin Luther King says, we're, we're going to back Bobby. Now that, what a painful time this is to even think about. Uh, Jim, I have a question. Uh, the tonality. I remember I was a freshman in college at this point in time. Do you recall, uh, or do you have a, a research, uh, crutch handy? What day it was in March of 68 that LBJ announced he wouldn't run? I think it was like March 20th. I, I remember there. it being in the second half of the month, uh, yeah. whether it was the 20th or the 23rd, whatever. Uh, then on April 4th, Martin Luther King gets assassinated. Same, same team basically that we've looked at in connection with JFK, more or less. And, and that cues another round of catastrophic urban rioting. Right. Exactly correct. The night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, all right, every city in America went up in flames except Indianapolis because Bobby Kennedy was campaigning there 
and um, he got the news that he was flying into a rally there about King's assassination. And he made what is probably, I think, his greatest speech there. And that managed to calm things down, all right? You know, you know, he said something like, you know, we don't need more destruction, more violence, more burning, more looting in the United States, okay? And that's what put a lid on it for, for Indianapolis. What's amazing, what I was going to say, Dave, isn't it amazing how short-lived that was? Well, yeah. it is. And, you know, I was young, and when you're young, time, you don't experience time the same way. But it was basically two weeks after yeah. LBJ announced he wouldn't run. The right. king was killed, uh, the cities explode, and then two months after that, Robert Kennedy gets killed. Right, right. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it lasted that, that calculus between king, Okay, and and Bobby Kennedy, you know, that what could have been, you know, one of the great, you know, combinations in history. It lasted, what, a few weeks? No, less than that, three weeks. And then Bobby Kennedy is killed two months later. And so that was, and and I've said this many times, and I think I'm absolutely correct, all right, that was the end of the 60s. Those two assassinations signaled the end of that, what I thought was a sensational decade, you know, comparatively speaking. And that, and that was it. That was essentially it, you know. And what happened, of course, as we know, Richard Nixon won that election in 1968, all right? And that really revived the Republican Party, right? Uh, and it became what, when it had really been on the ropes in 1964, when Johnson won that wipeout election. But it's amazing the difference four years made, you know? And the Republican Party, of course, as we know, has, has gotten further and further and further and further to the right. You know, and, and, and the Democratic Party has essentially stayed in the middle, you know, cause they lost the guys that they had on the left, you know, King and, 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 and the Kennedys, you know, and I, that's why most people, most historians, and I'm probably, you probably believe this also. 1968 was an absolutely maelstrom of a year. When you start talking about all the things that happened in that year, it's just utterly amazing. You know, and almost all of them were bad, you know, from the beginning to the end. You know, you start with the Tet Offensive, okay, in January of 1968, and you go to Richard Nixon's victory, all right, in November of 1968, and all the things that are sprinkled in between, you know, and that was... Like I said, the end of the 1960s. And I should also add another thing. It was a continuation of the Vietnam War. All right. It was Bobby Kennedy was determined to get us out of that thing. You know, Richard Nixon was not. And most of the American soldiers 
who lost their lives in Vietnam did so after Nixon became president. Yes. Something that yes, is not well remembered. Uh, Jim, this is a point that I think we really need to emphasize. You know, it may strike people as long ago and far away, because obviously we're almost 60 years from JFK's assassination. But the political dynamics that were birthed with this catastrophe, meaning uh, not only the Vietnam War, the, the uh, undermining of civil rights policy, but specifically the killings of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, and the urban rioting, Watts, Newark, Detroit, uh, this became what could be viewed as the dominant political dynamic in American electoral politics, because not only Richard Nixon, with his so-called Southern strategy in which he sought to uh, dominate the South because of his uh, anti-civil rights or anti-black uh, agenda, and then moving on from Nixon to Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump and their law and order, a euphemism, basically, uh, for uh, what they had in mind. And there is a, a Ronald Reagan who could perhaps be seen as the most successful practitioner of or implementer of this type of racist electoral strategy, racist politics. Uh, it might be worth mentioning where Ronald Reagan kicked off his 1980 campaign. <laughs> okay, well, I, I think that's very appropriate. Um, Ronald Reagan in 1980 decided to make his initial appearance, I believe, it was seven miles from where the bodies of those three civil rights workers uh, were found in 1960s. Was it 66? Okay. Of 1964. All right. It was seven miles away in Mississippi, you know, and uh, that you you don't get something like that is not a coincidence. That was that was clearly a message, you know, that he was sending. All right. To the white voters. Okay, that that was not an accident. Calling the dog whistle would be a euphemism. Yeah, (laughs) that's much too kind, Dave. That's much yeah. too kind. Yeah. It was more like a uh, a, a, a bugle uh, blowing right. the dawn. Yeah, I'd say a bugle call in the morning. You know, <laughs> this is the end of civil rights. All right, it's all over. What, 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 what Jim is talking about is a the number of three civil rights workers, two of whom were Jewish, one of whom was black, in Oxford, Mississippi, in 1964. And Jim, it might be worth mentioning who it was that LBJ appointed to oversee the investigation into that. Uh, wasn't it Dulles? It was Alan Dulles himself. Yeah. Yes, right, right. Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. That's those, it, yeah. Those were their names, right. And that, that movie, Mississippi Burning, is like a fictional treatment of, of the murder of those three guys, All right? And, and, that, and, and for Reagan to do that, for Reagan to do that, I don't see how anybody 
could misconstrue what he was trying to say. You know, and the fact that he got away with it, it shows you what had happened to the media by then also. And, and the ongoing dynamic, because, uh, Donald Trump, uh, basically Trump, if you will, forgive the pun, uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Nixon and the GOP in general, and, uh, successfully employed those same political dynamics, um, in 19, or excuse me, in, uh, 2016. Well, well, I mean, remember what Trump said? There were good people at both sides in Charlottesville? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and the, 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 is a dynamic. I mean, just the, the euphemizing of the far right and now with the Ukraine or outright Nazi elements is a, is another huge overlapping dynamic, not necessarily, uh, related directly to what we're talking about here with civil rights. But, uh, at, at the time when Donald Trump successfully used the law and order political battle cry, which really is a between-the-lines anti-black political battle cry. Crime, I mean, he, he used the law and order phrase, but crime in urban areas was actually declining at that point in time. So this was not something that was based on actual real events, but rather it was a rhetorical and psychosocial battle cry. Yes, I, 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 t- I totally agree with that. And you know something? They hardly disguise it anymore at all either. You know? Well, and, and now with the Trump, I think, packed the Supreme Court and, and people forget two, uh, some 200 appellate court judges. Uh, so you've got the Federalist Society, which, uh, at least they used to, they would open their meetings by singing Dixie. And, uh, <laughs> Are you serious? Yes, I am. Uh, I don't know if they still do that, but they did at one point in time. They pretty recently too. Uh, they, they helped to put together, uh, various legal gambits or strategies. And then they go to the appellate courts. If they clear the appellate courts, they go on up to the Supreme Court. So there is at this point a legal superstructure that has been built in no small measure, in reaction to the disturbances in the 1960s that we're talking about. You know, I think, Jim, for younger listeners, they may be wondering, well, you know, that was a long time ago, you know, who cares about that? The it, 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 One could not call them echoes, but the profound reverberations, the vibrations stemming from that cataclysm are basically shaping the world today. And uh yeah, the I, I yeah, you're exactly right, Dave. I totally agree. And remember, Kevin Phillips was a Repo- he him and Buchanan were Republican strategists back then. And he remember that book he wrote, The Coming Republican Majority? Yes I do. Right. It's a classic. And he the keystone of that book was the South. You know? So those guys knew what they were doing. They understood but the, the whole thing about white backlash. Uh, they did indeed, you know, I think perhaps uh, maybe this is developing the whole thing a little bit more than is necessary. But, you know, Kevin Phillips, who was one of the uh, ideological and literary architects of this strategy, he eventually 
has repudiated to a large extent the Republican Party. She had a book that came out in the early part of this century called American Dynasty about uh, the two Georges Bush and really talks about the Bush family and their involvement with the arms traffic, with uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, and a lot of things. So that when we're talking about Kevin Phillips, we're talking about someone who was an enthusiastic advocate of these, let's call it one of these anti-black politics, but who eventually himself not only moved past where the GOP was, but actually repudiated it. Right. That's 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 exactly what happened. I mean, he, he kind of created a Frankenstein, you know, <laughs> and he, and he's been trying to st- put a spike through its heart ever since, you know, he had no idea what he had created. You know, Jim, uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so in this interview. I think we, we might want to circle back to the JFK assassination per se. And there are a couple of items, and again, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, in the JFK Revisited documentary, there was discussion of Guy Bannister and his epicenter at uh, 544 Camp Street, 531 Lafayette Place. And it mentions, although there's not any real follow-up discussion, that he had strong links with the American Nazi Party, which he did. Uh, Guy Bannister himself, was a fierce opponent of the civil rights movement and actually published something, I think it was called the Louisiana Intelligence Digest, that was an anti-civil rights uh, periodical. Um, I wonder if, if maybe you would develop for us uh, first Guy Bannister and the pro-Nazi, literally, and, and anti-black, anti-black civil rights agenda that he was implementing and then again we've got about now nine minutes Uh, there's a fascinating episode Uh, you go into it investing me the trade there's a good uh, account in the let justice be done by uh, Bill Beatty when uh, the Adventures of Lee Harvey Oswald sounds really corny, like a kid's TV show, were chronicled. There's a very important element, incident, I should say, in Clinton, Louisiana, where Lee Harvey Oswald, apparently accompanied by David Ferry and Clay Shaw, were there to register Lee Harvey Oswald to vote, and they were one of the, the few, practically the only white people who were there. So maybe God Bannister and civil rights and his activities, and then Clinton, Louisiana. All right. Yeah, you're exactly right. Guy Bannister had connections to the American Nazi Party, as he did almost every right-wing group uh, in that area. All right. He also, as you said, was very much a racist. Okay. There's, there's no question about that. He had no interest, okay, at all in any kind of civil rights justice period. In fact, he had connections to all these anti-civil rights groups that were trying to suppress the vote, trying to, you know, intimidate, uh, African Americans and, and their sympathizers by trying to get the right to vote. Now, that's a good background for one of the strangest incidents in the JFK case. Uh, This was the sighting of Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, 
and Clayshaw, about 105 miles north of New Orleans, in these two small hamlets. Okay, um, one was called Jackson, one was called Clinton. I've been to each place several times since. All right, what happens is that Oswald is first seen in Jackson. He talks to the voter registrar Edward McGee, okay, who gives him some advice until because he said he was looking for a job. You should register, uh, you know, with the Reeves Morgan. He can give you some advice because he's a, he's a uh, legislator, all right, and it'll probably help you get a job around here, all right. And so Oswald then goes to see Reeves Morgan, all right, and he's in I think Clinton, all right. And so then he advises him to go to go ahead and sign up to vote, and maybe they can get him a job at the local hospital. So you get this incredible scene of there's there's core the core group, which was a civil rights group at that time, was sponsoring a voter rally there. But like for an acronym for the Congress of Racial Equality, right? Listeners may not know that. Okay. And so there's literally dozens of African-American people on the streets, you know, trying to sign up to vote. And this, of course, brings in some of the uh, Caucasian people around, all right, because they, they obviously don't like what's happening, all right? And so Oswald is like the only guy in line uh, who's a Caucasian. And so the... Guy comes down, the voter registrar comes down, all right, and because there's a big black Cadillac there, and Shaw and Ferry are in the car. There's actually a picture of this, if you can believe it, all right, that Garrison had, but he didn't want to present it in court because the resolution was so poor, you know, the, the that the defense would try and confuse the jury, all right, and so... The guy comes down, and he talks to the sheriff. The sheriff goes over to the car and says, can I see some ID? So Shaw turns over the ID, and he says, what's this international trademark? Okay, and he says, well, that's the place that I that I work at down in New Orleans that encourages international trade, all right? Okay, and so Oswald is talked to then, by the, one of the voter registrars, and he says, what, where do you live? And he goes, I live in New Orleans. Do you know anybody up here? And incredibly, and this is what gives it away, Oswald knew one of the doctor's names at that hospital. Doctor, I think it was Dr. Silva, all right? So that's how well rehearsed he was, all right? And so he says, well, you don't really have to get a red. There's people in working in this hospital that are from Mississippi. So you don't really have to be able to, you know, register to vote if you want to get a job there. All right. And so he goes, Oh, so he walks back to the car and they, they drive him over to the hospital and three witnesses inside the hospital went ahead and, uh, and saw him sign up for a job. Okay. It's one of the most amazing sequences in all the literature on the JFK case. And there's so many witnesses to this event. You know, uh, Garrison brought six of them to the Shaw trial, but he could have brought 20 if he wanted to. 
Okay, that's how many people saw this event, you know. And it's one of the most incriminating things in the whole case because, see, the law of conspiracy is that you have to take one step towards completing the conspiracy to convict somebody. This could have been considered the one step framing up Oswald because I'm sure you know Jim Garrison thought the whole idea behind this was they were going to shift Oswald's file from the employment file to the patient file. And this would be the sine qua non to show that Oswald was not just a social misfit. He was really mentally disturbed. That's what Gary thought of it. As I recall, that particular hospital, we're almost out of time for this interview, also had a lot of uh, national security slash uh, right. CIMK ultra activity going on yes. at that hospital at that time. So uh, if for the sake of argument, Oswald had gotten a job, he could have had his eggs scrambled to be good there. Right. You're exactly right. Uh, Jim, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Again, people could picture what it must have been like to have David Ferry and Clay Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald as practically the only uh, white people in this uh, large aggregation of black folks who were there to register uh, to vote. So uh, this is this this appearance by our boys uh, is in the middle of a civil rights manifestation. Uh, Jim, we've got a couple of minutes left, and uh, if you would tell people about uh, Kennedy'sandKing.com, about Black Ops Radio, and uh, also about the book and the documentary. And by the way, the three interviews that we have been doing uh, with Jim about. Uh, Kennedy's plural civil rights policy, uh, are, uh, set forth beautifully in a four-part essay that is available on kennedysandking.com, Jim's website. Jim, uh, take it from there. All right. Kennedysandking.com is what I edit and publish the website. It has reviews of books, research articles, and news items. And this, as this four-part essay, um, on this, on Kennedy's and civil rights, how the MSM distorts history. It's on that site. Okay. I'm a semi-regular on Black Op Radio out of Vancouver with Leno Sanic as the host. The DVD disc of this film that I worked on, I wrote the script for JFK Revisited and JFK Destiny Betrayed. If you can believe it, it's, it's number, it's still number four on the Amazon listings, even though it came out seven months ago, almost. All right, the book, which um, I wrote with an introduction by Oliver Stone, is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. And what you'll, you'll get the two annotated scripts, plus about 28 interviews that didn't get into the film. It's very much a good book with a lot of valuable information in it if I say so myself. So go ahead and, and the, pick it up if you can. And specifically, the uh, information about Clinton and Mr. McGahey is set forth in the book. It, it sadly did not make the cut for the documentary. Right. This concludes, for the record, program number 1287. Interview number 24 with Jim DiGemio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 3rd of 2023, Black History Month. For Jim DiGemio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.